Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 51st episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. We're still reeling from the opportunity we had to interview Governor Cooper on episode 50, where I had the chance to sit down with him, talk about EO80, offshore wind, and his stance on comprehensive energy legislation coming out of the General Assembly. So if you haven't yet had a chance to listen to that episode, go back and give that a listen now. The best part is, I think we're following up that episode with another absolute rock star of a guest. But before we get to that, let's jump into some short updates. So as most of our listeners tuning in have probably heard by now, draft language for a comprehensive energy bill was released last week in the House by Republican leaders after months of negotiations. NCSEA was fortunate to be included in those conversations, and our goals as a participant in the House-led process were to craft a bill that protects customers and ensures rates remain affordable, and that's customers of all sizes, whether homeowners, businesses big and small, major manufacturers, and others, and then also to increase deployment, access, and ease of access to renewable energy sources to meet growing customer demand while promoting market competition and economic investment in North Carolina. At a high level, the omnibus legislation deals with a number of energy issues. It's hard to quickly summarize a nearly 50-page bill, but generally speaking, the proposed legislation directs the retirement of subcritical coal, directs the procurement of a combination of solar, natural gas, and energy storage resources, authorizes the securitization of $200 million in costs, for coal retirement, directs Duke to spend $50 million on small modular reactors, authorizes performance-based regulation, which includes performance incentive mechanisms, decoupling of residential electricity rates, and multi-year rate plans, changes a number of customer programs including Green Source Advantage, Community Solar, Net Energy Metering, and Rooftop Solar Leasing Statutes, and authorizes existing solar projects to renegotiate their power purchase agreements. Shortly after the bill draft was introduced last week, NCSEA released a statement opposing the bill due to a handful of problematic provisions, which can be found on our website. Our four major concerns really boil down to concerns over lack of utility guardrails and customer protections. But we know a bill of this size is all about negotiation and that we could get a supportive or neutral stance if major concerns are addressed. In the coming weeks, NCSEA hopes to work through key issues with stakeholders and legislative leaders, and ultimately get the bill to a place that is good for customers, good for clean energy, and good for North Carolina. We'll be sure to keep you in the loop on future developments, so stay tuned. All right. On today's episode, we're continuing our mini-series focused on energy storage. As you may remember, we started this series by talking about the supply chain of energy storage in North Carolina, beginning with extraction and refinement with Brian Reisinger of Piedmont Lithium back on episode 49. Today, we're kicking off the next phase of our storage focus by talking about innovation. Across the state of North Carolina, 
We are home to numerous research institutions, organizations, and companies making strides in the development of upcoming storage technologies for the grid and electric vehicles. Some of those include our friends over at NC State University, the International Zinc Association, and the company FlexGen. We'll hear from a few of them in future episodes. There's your little teaser for what's coming up. But on today's episode, we'll do some level setting and talk at a high level about the storage technologies you can expect to see coming to market in the near future and being deployed on the grid near you. So on that note, let's go ahead and kick off the 51st episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Clean energy. Our next guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast has been an industry-wide thought leader on clean energy for just about 15 years now. Most recently, from 2015 to 2020, our guest was with Vox, and before that was with Grist, a publication focused on environmental news, where he was hired in 2004. Over those 15-plus years, our guest has written for various other publications and has appeared on a variety of TV shows, radio programs, and podcasts like All In with Chris Hayes and On the Media, along with Pod Save America and Why Is This Happening? His works have also been cited and quoted by names you might recognize like Al Gore, John Favreau, Tom Friedman, Margaret Sullivan, Jay Rosen, Elizabeth Colbert, and Bill McKibben. Chances are you've read our next guest's work in previously mentioned publications or online via his wide-reaching social media presence. Friends of the pod, please welcome David Roberts of Bolts. All right, so David, thanks so much for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. We're really excited to have you here today to talk about storage, what's on the market, and what's to come. Uh, but before we dive into that topic, many of our listeners probably already know you from the Volts newsletter or by Dr. Volts on social media. But for those that don't, can you tell them a little bit more about Volts and how it came to be? Sure. I was, uh, I've been covering these subjects, uh, climate change and clean energy for about 15 years now. I was at grist.org, a little environmental publication for 10 years. And then Vox, um, uh, invited me over and I wrote for Vox for five years. And then just late last year, December of last year, I launched out on my own thing with my own newsletter. Now a subscription newsletter, uh, called volts. It's at volts.wtf. And, uh, I'm still covering the things I was covering, but just, uh, if anything, even in more wonky, <laughs> tedious detail, it's, it's for the hardcore. I'm writing for the hardcore now. Well, great, and I would uh, I would consider many of our listeners here on the podcast today to be to be hardcore. So I'm uh, excited to have this conversation with you specifically about storage technologies. And I know for you, um, this week or I guess probably the past couple of weeks have been uh, unofficially storage week, and you've it's been, been a, focused. It's been on a that. month now, a month long week. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, that's that's kind of how we're approaching it here as part of this storage mini series. There's so much to talk about as it relates to storage, and it's such a growing part of the industry um, that we could probably spend an entire year on Storage Week. Um, so, similar to to Volts, um, as I just mentioned, we've been focused on storage as as a topic. Um, we've been looking at it from all aspects, from supply chain to markets and policy, and then um, the focus of today's episode being innovation and what's on the horizon. So 
you specifically wrote recently about the sector of the market focused on mid-duration storage to enable further deployment of renewables onto the grid. So to level set, what is mid-duration storage and how does it compare to something like lithium-ion batteries that we use in today's electric vehicles? Sure, sure. Well, there's a, several different ways of dividing things up. The first division, I think, which is important, is there's an electric vehicle market for electric vehicle batteries, and then there's a storage, energy storage market. Um, and then the energy storage market is also divided <laughs> into sort of uh, home batteries, kind of residential batteries, the kind of batteries you have in your building behind the meter, they call it. Um, you know, sort of one or two batteries. And then there are <clears throat> sort of larger scale battery stacks that are designed to help the grid, sort of like large scale, uh, large scale grid storage. So all of these, you know, all these, and, and, and so then <laughs> in the grid storage market, there is, um, you know, I think most people are familiar by now with sh short duration storage which is overwhelming 99% these days provided by lithium ion batteries. And that sort of ranges anywhere from storage of a few seconds, you know, when, when batteries can help provide grid services or sort of help regulate voltage and frequency, you know, these very, very small micro transactions just to level the level power supply out anywhere from a few seconds up to about four hours. Um, in that market, short duration storage is, like I said, 99% lithium ion batteries right now. They've, they've kind of got that locked up. They're getting cheaper and cheaper doing that. Then on the far other side of the grid storage market, you have long duration storage. And by long duration, I mean in the, in the realm of days, weeks, months, even seasons, because, you know, you talk to most energy modelers and they say in an in, in a electricity system primarily dependent on renewable energy, which is variable, comes and goes with the weather, there are going to be periods, sometimes long periods with lower than average wind and sun. So you'll need ways of storing lots of energy for a very long time <laughs> and and lithium ion batteries are are not going to work for that <laughs> you need you need just wildly cheap storage to make that work but in between those two is what you call, might call mid duration storage which is sort of the 4 to 24 hour um, window it's still i think in the industry generally thought of as short term storage but i think it's somewhat different than the kind of zero to four uh, uh, market. So lithium ion batteries have electric vehicles pretty much locked up. I mean, there are, there are a few non-lithium competitors, but they're way behind and lithium ion batteries are just dominating that market completely and are likely to dominate it forever. Um, lithium ion batteries are also dominating the short duration grid storage market. Um, but in when it comes to mid-duration, there's some space for competition, basically, the, because lithium-ion batteries start getting expensive when you get, 
you know, I, I mean, I think there are today some six hour ins- installations, maybe even like an eight hour installation using lithium ion batteries, but they get really expensive when you get up to those kind of durations. So the, the kind of the hunt is on for other chemistries or other technologies that can fill in that market. That's kind of, in terms of energy storage, that's kind of one of the only places where lithium ion batteries are just not obviously dominant, right? Forever. Like it's one of the few areas of energy storage where there might be a place for some competitors. Because when you, you know, what you need for mid-duration storage and, and long duration storage too is really high capacity. You need to be able to store a lot of energy. So the great advantage of lithium ion batteries and the reason they've dominated so far is that they have really, really great energy density um, and specific energy, which, which just means you can pack a lot of power and storage into a small space, which is very obviously important in electric vehicles. The, the amount of space you take and your weight, especially, is incredibly important in a vehicle. So you can't beat lithium ion on those metrics. But when it comes to grid storage, um, if your battery's just sitting there, <laughs> right, in a field somewhere, you don't care as much if it's heavy, right, or if it's big. It's just sitting there. So, so energy density and specific energy are not kind of the, the, the only thing that matters. In, in grid storage. What matters more when it comes to grid storage is capacity. How much energy can you, can you store? And um, lifetime, sort of how long can you last? How many cycles can you go through? And then safety is a huge thing because you don't want runaway fires <laughs> in your, especially if you've got a battery in like your garage or whatever, you don't want, uh, you know, runaway fires. So, so there are other chemistries that are somewhat more competitive on those metrics on sort of safety and, and capacity and duration. And that's, and sort of those technologies are kind of clustering in trying to compete in the mid duration storage market. And it's an open question, you, you know, the sort of the conventional wisdom, the conventional wisdom used to be that lithium ion batteries would be useless for any kind of grid storage because they're too expensive, but they just got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. (laughs) So they're sort of creeping up, you know, the grid storage ladder up to four hours now. And now the conventional wisdom is, oh, well, beyond four hours, they'll be too expensive and we'll need something else. But there's always the chance uh, that history could repeat itself and lithium ion batteries could defy expectations and predictions and get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper even still and kind of like dominate six hour, eight hour, you know, 12 hour. It may be that lithium ion batteries just march to dominance of this entire. So that's, that's, it's an open question right now. It's an interesting area. Well, so you mentioned other technologies that are out there um, that could be potentially well suited for mid duration and long duration uh, grid storage. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those technologies are? Sure. Well, one of the big ones, um, one of the big hyped contenders are called flow batteries. The cool thing about 
flow batteries is instead of having the energy stored in metals on the on the um, electrodes, the energy is stored in dissolved metals in fluids. So you have an, a, a catholite and an analyte. You have these two separate fluids and you run the two fluids past each other in a fuel cell in the middle. So the, the, main, the, the main thing to know about this, the interesting thing to know about this is it separates power, i.e. how much energy at one time you can get out versus energy capacity, how much energy you can store. So if you want more storage capacity, you just make the tanks of fluids bigger. And you can theoretically do that without limit, right? I mean, you could make tanks that are, you know, the size of skyscrapers, whatever. <laughs> like in theory, there's no limit to the amount of energy you can store. And then if you want more power out of it, you make um, the fuel cell in the middle bigger but those two you can you can make those bigger and smaller independently so you can get more or less power more or less energy storage independently unlike with say lithium-ion batteries where when you're doubling energy capacity you're doubling everything else too so you're basically doubling costs but if i have a flow battery you know with a fuel cell in the middle and two tanks on either side and i want more energy storage capacity i just make bigger tanks and that fluid, that fluid that's in the tanks, the goop, is relatively cheap. So the great promise of flow batteries is that you can expand the amount of energy they can store almost without limit relatively cheaply. You're just like paying for the goop, basically paying for more fluids. There are, you know, the tanks add some expense, the pumps to circulate the fluids add some expense and there's maintenance there's more sort of ongoing maintenance on these than there are for lithium-ion batteries which are pretty much just set it and forget it but the promise is you can get really really high capacity batteries for relatively cheap so flow batteries have been around for years now and have sort of been like many many battery technologies kind of been the next big thing for for a long time without ever actually becoming the big thing um and sort of the 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 problem for flow batteries you know you might have heard of vanadium flow batteries they were kind of super hyped a few years ago vanadium is just the metal to be dissolved in the in the fluids but like they just like lithium ion batteries keep getting cheaper and cheaper and vanadium is a, it's a relatively expensive material. So there's other chemistries of flow batteries. Now iron uh, uh, flow batteries, zinc flow batteries, depending on where you, what metal you want to dissolve into your goop, basically there's, the hunt is on for cheaper, cheaper metals to store the goop. So flow batteries are, you know, it's interesting. It's one of these areas of technology where there is kind of almost no conventional wisdom. It really depends who you ask, what you hear about flow batteries. You can find people who will say, you know, flow batteries, like lithium ion batteries will outcompete them in like two to four hours. But once you're getting up to like 10, 20 hours, right, the, 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 you amortize your flow battery, you start getting much, much cheaper per kilowatt hour 
when you when you contemplate longer durations. So there are still people, there are still ongoing flow battery companies competing and and who think they have a chance, you know, who who, who still think that flow is going to be the next big thing. And you can find other people who will tell you, like I talked to this this one uh, battery expert, Dan Steingart at, at Columbia. He was basically saying, it is true that you can expand flow batteries forever for nothing, for, for little more than the price of the goop, right? The price of the fluids. But lithium ion batteries are getting so damn cheap that they are approaching the price of the goop. <laughs> they're getting so cheap that they're that they're almost about to like beat flow even purely on cost. And, and you know, like because of the nature of the situation, flow batteries are going to be cheaper at some duration, right? Just because of the kind of the nature of the thing. But but the question is like how much of that long duration is there enough of that super long duration storage? I mean, right now there's no market for it, but will there ever be enough of a market for it that you can sustain a battery chemistry and a set of battery companies just going after that little market niche? You know what I mean? So that's that's flow batteries. They're an ongoing concern, and that's very much an open question now whether they'll be able to survive. Then um, there are a couple others. The next one I would say in terms of promise and is most interesting are called liquid metal batteries. There's only one company right now, I think, that's that's making them commercially called Ambry. Um, and it's spun out of MIT. It's the guy who developed this, this chemistry. But basically, if you can imagine, it's just a stainless steel box, small box. It looks like about the size of a car battery-ish. Just a stainless steel box. And inside the box are fluids. So that the, the cathode and the anode and the electrolyte are all fluids. So what happens is, um, and, and the electrolyte is called is molten salt. So at room temperature, these are just inert. They won't do anything, which is like a, a safety you know, advantage. You can mess around with them, get them all built, get them all installed with no, you know, no danger. And then once you've installed them, you superheat them to make the molten salt, uh, it's like 500 degrees Celsius inside there. But through some magic, <laughs> once you heat them that first time, they'll stay superheated inside the stainless steel box basically forever. And because you know you're trading ions back and forth, and this is always in, in any battery. You know you're sending ions back and forth in a in a liquid in a um, lithium-ion battery because the ions are going from kind of one solid to another solid. There's what's called memory, so like the ions kind of bump into the to the lattice structure and make these little micro damages, you know, just so, such that over time you cycle it enough, it degrades, right? This is the big thing about lithium ion batteries. The beauty of liquid um, anodes and cathodes is they don't, there's no memory. There's no degradation when they absorb ions and release ions. So it's amazing. Like there's this graph of this liquid, metal battery being run out to thousands, like 10,000 cycles or something. I forget the exact number, but with effectively zero loss of capacity. Like there's just no degradation, which is amazing, especially if you want big, long-term, safe, 
right? Storage. Like that's, that's, that's amazing. And this has been an amazing big next thing now for like 10 years. <laughs> People have been watching Ambry for so long now. And they like their first attempt in 2015, they had some fundamental problems with their battery. They kind of scrapped everything and started over. Like it's an amazing, they're still alive, but finally now they're in the midst of installing a 2,500 megawatt installation of these batteries. It's going to be the first sort of scale installation of these liquid metal batteries. And so we will finally get to see, do they perform in the field the way they do in the lab, the way the company claims? If they do, um, I think they could really, they could really take off because a battery that will cycle basically endlessly <laughs> without losing capacity is is extremely valuable when you're talking about large amounts of energy being stored for long periods of time. So liquid metal is is cool. And, and ambry too is one of those things where depending on who you ask, it's like, ah, pipe, pipe dream, pie in the sky, been around forever, next big thing, never going to happen. And then other people who are like betting, you know, kajillions of dollars on it, including Bill Gates. So that's really interesting. Um, and then there are a couple others like sodium, like there are a couple of others that rather than using kind of fundamentally different, uh, structures are just sort of like analogous to lithium ion, but they just substitute a different metal for lithium. So there's, there's sodium ion, um, which is, you know, basically like lithium ion, but using sodium, sodium doesn't have the energy density that lithium ion has, but it has a couple of advantages. It won't catch fire. <laughs> it's very, very safe. And as you might know, salt, you know, sodium is quite abundant and cheap and inert and safe, really dirt, dirt cheap. So, so, you know, sodium ion, uh, so like, and then there's zinc also, which is just another light metal like lithium that can basically be used to make zinc ion batteries. So sodium ion and zinc ion are both doing something interesting, which is they're going after, um, you know, the, the storage market, they're going after lithium ion batteries in the storage market, but they're also trying to replace uh, lead acid batteries. You know, your, your, your listeners may or not, may or not know lithium ion gets all the hype, but lead acid batteries, old fashioned lead acid batteries are still quite ubiquitous. It's still a $45 billion global market and, and lead acid is, is nasty for a variety of reasons. So like lead, lead acid gets used in like forklifts and data centers and, you know, there's a lot of remaining so a lot of the like the sodium ion people and the and the and the zinc ion people think we can be as safe as lead acid with almost the energy density of lithium ion. So they think they've got like a nice little sweet spot there that's going to help them replace a bunch of lead acid batteries and eat into lithium ion. So sodium ion and zinc ion are so, sort of both in that in that category. So those are kind of the non-lithium um, competitors that are that are going after li lithium via the, the grid storage market.
It's interesting that that you mentioned lead acid batteries. I had a chance um, a couple of years ago to tour a data center here in North Carolina, and they had an entire room dedicated to to lead acid batteries yeah. as emergency backup. And you know, if the system, if their their power were to go down for the next you know three or four minutes, it would revert over to power from the lead acid battery banks. But then uh, that was only in the interim until they kicked on the 15 diesel generators outside yep. <laughs> to take over for the system. Um, and, and that's you, a pretty You can see factor. why all sorts of sustainability people are like, oh my God, I gotta, we got to do something about that. We got to <laughs> go after that. So, so there's promise now that you can get the same reliable backup, the same whatever Six Sigma, whatever quality power that they need in a data center with sufficiently um with batteries that have sufficient capacity also that you can replace the diesel generators that you could actually run your your um data center for you know like an hour or or two uh on just battery backup so that's a juicy target for battery people of various kinds absolutely and so you mentioned with with the liquid metal batteries that there is a you know potential pilot project coming up for a, tw- a 2500 megawatts um, in, in terms of some of these technologies that you're talking about right now, are there projects already deployed using these these newer technologies, or are there still still in the works in terms of what's out there in the market? No, these are all 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 four of the the ones I mentioned are commercialized. There are companies making them and selling them, and they're they're being they're being installed uh, in various places. So, yeah, these are not. These are not sort of on the scientific frontier kind of things. These are are commercial. It's just, you know, it's about can you, I mean, this is the race with lithium ion batteries. Right now, lithium ion batteries, the main advantage they have, um, you know, physically it's energy density, but, but even more important than that, the main advantage they have is that they're very, very familiar at this point, <laughs> like everybody knows you, their failure rates, the rate of degradation, the rate of accidents, it's all very well understood. It's all very predictable. So like you can go to a financier, a project, you know, project finance and tell them exactly numerically, here's what's going to happen. Here's the risk. And it's, and it's, it's, so it's very bankable, right? It's very familiar and bankable and all these new companies, even ones that have performance or technological advantages in various niche applications, if you're the banker, you know, like you've got a company coming to you and saying, hey, for this niche, I've got this brand new thing that can do these brand new, you know, it's got these brand new performance, can do this and that. It's you know, these are very small C conservative <laughs> institutions. And and then you got a lithium ion person coming to you saying, I can tell you exactly how much you need down to the number, what the risk is, what the return is. Like I can give you all the numbers out for 20 years versus some risk with a new kind of technology. That more than anything else is the reason all these competitors are are, are struggling. So all these competitors there are companies making them and there are installations here and there, but there's just a certain threshold of size you have to get to or a threshold of sort of deployment you have to get to that makes 
bankers <laughs> comfortable. <laughs> and, and none of them have gotten over that hump yet. And that's the real, if you want to last a long time, if you want to be an enduring participant in the market, that's the hump you got to get over. So you mentioned predictability and familiarity with lithium, lithium ion is, is a big reason why it's kind of the, the market dominance or the, the market player out there. Um, so what is it going to take for some of these other technologies to, to really break through and start to play a larger role in the storage market? Well, that's a really uh, interesting and live question. <laughs> no one, no one is, is sure. I mean, the sense I got from talking to a bunch of different people about this over the weeks is that lithium ions kind of market lead in the terms I was just discussing, sort of bankability, familiarity, scale, you know, like there's so much lithium ion manufacturing going on now. And the more you manufacture, the more you learn and the cheaper it gets, right? This is like a law of whatever, everything. The more you, you double your manufacturing capacity, you half the cost or something like that, you, you know? So, and, and lithium ion is just on that path. So, it's like if you've got a new battery chemistry, um, you know, in your head, you're not competing necessarily with today's lithium ion prices. You have to like project like by the time I can get my battery built and demonstrated and funded, it's five, 10 years. And then I'm competing with much cheaper lithium ion prices, right? I mean, this is this is the difficulty. So I, my general sense that I got from from experts, although you can find dissenting opinions on any of these, is that no chemistry is going to be able to get over that hump and become a, um, a, an enduring market player without some government help, basically. Like there's an argument, and this is a really interesting public policy argument that's going on behind the scenes now is, is it the role of the government? Is it the role of public policy to actively encourage competitors to lithium ion, right? Or should it just step back and say, well, the market's the market, the market has decided, the market has decided on lithium ion. If any other technology can get into the market, then good for it. But like, it's not our job to mess with the market. I'm, I'm much more on the former <laughs> side. I mean, I, I, because the argument of people who, who are arguing for government intervention is that even though lithium ion is getting cheaper and cheaper and dominating these short duration um, um, spaces, we know just from projections and models that the more ener renewable energy you put on the system, you're going to need more and more longer and longer duration storage. And we know that lithium ion batteries are going to hit up, hit some kind of ceiling and we're going to need something else. And it would be dumb to just wait until that happens and then scramble to try to develop those other things, right? Like what we ought to be doing, if we're smart, is encouraging the growth and development of these competitors so that when that this demand for longer duration storage starts kicking up, um, we have stuff ready to go. So that's an argument for DOE, you know, the Department of Energy funding um, research and demonstration projects and, and um, you know, demonstration builds of all these things, like just to show that they can work. It's an argument for what are called demand pull policies, which just means um, policies that 
pull these things into markets. So like if you think of uh, feed-in tariffs, how they helped solar in Germany, it pulled, it offered incentives to homeowners to choose solar panels. So it pulled solar panels into market and by doing so made them much cheaper. So there's an argument right now about whether, um, you know, I think sort of where I came out after writing all this is absent government intervention, lithium ion batteries probably have a lock on this whole, on everything <laughs> for as far as the eye can see. But it is worthwhile, I think, for the government to take a more active role and encourage more research and development and help some of these companies create some demand pull policies that pulls them in. Like the upside is, you know, we might have a bunch of longer duration storage ready to go when the market's ready for it, which is great. The downside is just oh, like maybe we won't need them in the end, but we're still going to learn a ton from developing them, right? Like there's all these spin-off second order benefits of of uh, you know government research and development and deployment. So I kind of think government should step in, but I think if government doesn't step in there's at least a, a, a pretty solid argument to be made that lithium ion batteries are just going to bigfoot everyone else out of this, at least for the next 10 years. So with demand pull policies, you know, in place and opportunities, you know, through Department of Energy groups like ARPA-E, um, do you, and just the, the, kind of the direction of the market moving forward, which appears to be an overwhelming demand for storage. Do you foresee an opportunity for all of these technologies to play a role in the market? I do eventually, but like, <laughs> you know, you talk to people who run these companies and they'll tell you, I can't, I can't pay my workers on eventually, <laughs> right? Like, like, uh, you know, on some time horizon is not something you want to put in your, in your business prospectus. Uh, but nonetheless, on some time horizon, uh, yes, because the reason there isn't much market right now for longer, for long duration storage is that the role that long duration storage would play is played today by natural gas peaker plants, which are way, way, way cheaper than any long-term storage we know of, right? They're very good at that job. They're, they, they fit that niche really well. So it's super, super hard for any long-duration storage um, uh, technology to just get in via the market, right? Because they're not competing with other storage. They're competing with, with other firm generation. Uh, which is today inevitably cheaper. But in the future, um, we're decarbonizing, or so we say, and 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 Biden is shooting for a, a, a net zero carbon electricity sector by 2035, which is real soon. So those, those natural gas and other fossil fuel plants that are serving that peaker role right now are going to have to be phased out at some point point and then we will need other technologies to play that role and at that point there's going to be a desperate scramble for 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 longer duration storage and anything else that will be able to do what those plants do so so you know it's like 
you're a flow battery developer or some other longer duration story storage developer, you have this sort of like um, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but it's just all about getting from here to there. So I, I have faith and, and, and every reason to believe that in a fully decarbonized electricity sector, especially a fully decarbonized electricity sector that is also powering transportation and is also powering buildings, right? Which they are, which it isn't today is much going to be a bigger electricity sector. Um, a fully zero carbon electricity sector will need a variety of storage technologies. So there will eventually be markets for these things. We're just in a very familiar dilemma of like, do we wait <laughs> for the market or do we take an active hand in trying to shape what will be ready when that happens? And, you know, I, I find it fascinating, too. I mean, a lot of the time that we spent today, we're talking about different sort of battery chemistries that were out there. But there are also non-conventional sort of storage technologies, thinking about things like Pumped Hydro, the company Energy Vault that's doing some mm -hmm. really interesting stuff. Um, it'll be interesting to see how all of these different chemistries, different non-conventional storage methods play a role in the market moving forward. And especially, I think, as we start to, to really realize uh, the additional benefits that storage brings to the grid through things like ancillary services as well and start to incentivize those mechanisms, the case for storage becomes even more overwhelming than it is today. Um, so, David, on, on, on that note, um, I want to thank you for the time you spent this afternoon with us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I know our, our listeners did as well. Um, and if you want to find out more about uh, David and the work that he does, you can subscribe to his newsletter, Volts, at volts.wtf. So, David, thank you so much for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thanks for having me. My key takeaway from this episode is the fact that there's no one silver bullet to addressing the needs served by energy storage in the market. As David mentioned, lithium ion has really taken off as an industry favorite, but many other technologies can really serve a wide variety of purposes from grid ancillary services to scalable modular solutions to even more cost-effective options as we continue to deploy more renewables across the grid. As is the old saying, we shouldn't put all of our eggs in one basket. We shouldn't put all of our collective interest in the lithium-ion train either, as numerous other technologies are starting to show their value in the industry. On that note, make sure to tune in to our next episode where we'll dive into more details about one of these new storage technologies and how it's already being deployed in North Carolina. And that does it for today's episode, but before you go, we've got another episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler. Every episode, join us as we travel to each corner of the state to tell you the story of clean energy and the value it brings to our local communities. Along the way, you'll also have the chance to learn a little bit more about each of the communities that call these projects home. So on this week's episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler, we're headed over to Currituck County, and to lead us on this journey is NCSEA's own Energy Program Manager and Duplin County native, Daniel Pate. <music>
Welcome back, Squeaky Cleaners, to yet another edition of the North Carolina Solar Traveler. As you may remember, in our last edition, we went pretty far in the northeast of the state, up to Hertford and Northampton counties. And now we're going to go even more northeast, about as northeast as you can get to Currituck County. Here in Currituck County, you can find a total of 18 solar systems that have a capacity of over 160 megawatts. Special shout out to the town of Moyoc for being host to the two biggest solar farms in this county. Each of these have a capacity of 60 megawatts. Now hopping over to some fun facts, Currituck County is home to the Currituck National Wildlife Refuge. This refuge was established in 1984, and according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the primary purposes of this refuge is to preserve and protect populations of migratory birds, wildlife, fish, and plants. Here in this refuge, you can find a variety of wildlife ranging from wading birds, shorebirds, a variety of mammals, reptiles, and amphibians. You may be able to find the occasional piping plover and loggerhead sea turtle. Here at this wildlife refuge, you may encounter the unique specimen that is the Corolla wild horse. These horses were introduced by early explorers from Spain as they brought these to the Outer Banks approximately 400 years ago. And that's it for this week's North Carolina Solar Traveler. Since we're talking about the Outer Banks, keep an eye out as the wind's in our sails here in North Carolina for the future development of offshore wind. As you heard in last week's episode, Governor Cooper just signed a new executive order establishing exciting new goals for offshore wind in our state. 2.8 gigawatts of wind by 2030 and 8 gigawatts by 2040. So stay tuned for more updates on offshore wind in future episodes. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel, M-A-T-T-A-B-E-L-E for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 51 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.